0: A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Hurlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian
1: Estala, VP of Data Mesh Consulting Services at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading sponsor for Trino, the open source project, and Jamak's Data Mesh book, delivering Data-Driven Value at Scale. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io.
0: Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left data stacks. You know, Thanks bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Abe Gong, the co-creator of the open source data quality monitoring observability tool, Great Expectations. Abe is also the co-founder and CEO of Superconductive, which is offering Great Expectations as a service and, and pushing its development. I asked Abe to be on to talk about all things data contracts. He's one of the few people I could find who has published good content on the subject prior to kind of the beginning of this year. One caveat before jumping in is that Abe is passionate about the topic and has created tooling to help address it. So try to view Abe's discussion of great expectations as an approach rather than as a commercial for specifically the great expectations project slash product. An important point that has come up in all of the conversations about data contracts on this podcast is that data contracts aren't only about the schema. If you view them that way, the semantics can change, but the contract will still be deemed valid. Essentially, the data is wrong, but it's failing silently. That's a bad thing. So on to the fun of data contracts. Are are we trying to lock ourselves into serving data in the exact same way going forward? No. Or are we really trying to set a social agreement, a set of expectations so data consumers know what they're getting and can feel safe in the reusability re- and repeatability, you know, that steadiness of the data products they are consuming from? Abe believes the, the latter, and I see his point after our conversation of, of that we want to really set these as, as expectations. So to define expectations here... This would include the, the schema and, and some like value ranges and types in the data. So for instance, a, a column may be uh, a ranking system of one to five, and then the application team changes it to be one to 10. The schema may not be broken. It is still passing whole numbers, but the new range is not within expectations. There isn't a perfect way to share semantic expectations as well, and I don't believe There ever will be. I don't think that that a tool can really do that. We need to fall on communication and process to really address that. To start the conversation, Abe shared some of his background experience living the pain of unexpected upstream data changes, causing data chaos and lots of work to recover from and, and adapt to. Part of where we need to get to using something like data contracts is to remove the need to recover. In addition to uh, adapting, and move towards just having that controlled, expected adaptation. As Abe put it, while upstream changes are a breaking change for the data consumer, it wasn't a breaking change for the producer. So, how do we let the the producers really know what they're gonna if what they're gonna do is gonna change or break things for people downstream? At current, Abe sees the best way to not break those kind of social expectations around that contract uh, is via getting consumers and producers in a meeting to talk about upcoming changes and prepare, you know, something like versioning or or just kind of working with that consumer team specifically to understand what's going to be happening. But Abe sees a world where we don't even need that meeting going forward, kind of self-healing data consumption that automatically adapts to changes upstream where possible. I think that is a bit pie in the sky thinking, but I'd love for us to get there. I'm just skeptical. Abe sees two distinct use cases in general for data contracts, or more specifically, how people are using great expectations to implement data contracts. The first is purely defensively. Put some validation on the data you are ingesting to prevent data that doesn't match from blowing up your own work. And then the second type is when the consuming team shares their expectations, specifically with the producers. There's more of a formal agreement or or contract with a shared set of expectations. This agreement conversation often happens when there is an upstream breaking change as kind of the factor that caused the conversation instead of just somebody putting in the blocking to prevent those things from being an issue. Abe also mentioned something where I don't quite understand the exact implications here, but when talking about data contracts, there is a third constituent in the room, not just the producers and the consumers. The third constituent is the data itself. The data has a veto. Sometimes the consumers and, and producers may agree, but the data makes it hard or it would be incorrect to move forward in that one way. Again, the data has a veto. We didn't dig deeper there, but I, I think it's an interesting concept that, that people should really start to think about and, and look at more. We had an interesting discussion about push versus pull uh, on data contracts. Should the producer team create an all-encompassing contract or should we have more consumer-driven context? Would producer-driven contracts be too restrictive? preventing the serendipity insights data mesh aims to produce? Or as well, do they have to think about every single potential use case ahead of time? And then they're kind of in this boat of saying, we're going to do these 80 things when the consumers really only want them to serve up uh, things to allow 40 of those or 20 of those. Would consumer-driven contracts mean multiple contracts for each data product? that the producer agrees to. Is that really sustainable? So I think in summing it up, the idea of explicit expectations around a data product that are the result of collaboration between producers and consumers sounds like where we should all head if possible. If the expectation set is only coming from the producer side, it might be overly restrictive or overly broad and kind of, commit them to doing things that aren't of value, and miss a lot of the nuance necessary to actually create that consumer trust. And exclusively consumer-driven contexts don't sound sustainable or scalable. So I think this is a really good um, addition to the general topic that we've been having on data contracts, and that it will provide a lot of food for thought. So let's go ahead and jump in. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Very, very excited about today's episode. I've got Abe Gong here, who is the co-creator of the open source project, Great Expectations, and then CEO and co-founder of the company that's kind of offering that as a service and helping with moving that, that project along, uh, which is super conductive and Great Expectations. If you're not familiar, it's it's got kind of a lot of different aspects to it and a lot of different uses for... Um, Uh, data observability, data quality, all all sorts of that um, space, because it kind of ends up uh, dovetailing into a lot of different uh, useful things. And a lot of folks are using it, even if they're using it in conjunction with other observability or monitoring and things, tools in that space. So we're going to be talking about data contracts just in general and and digging deeper into this. And Abe's got a, a lot of really good experience from being a practitioner and then also like uh, being in the space of seeing, uh, you know, creating a tool around, hey, what broke? <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> that we're, is... we're a magnet for interesting stories that way, right?
0: Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, Abe, if you don't mind, if you could give people a little bit of background on yourself, and then uh, we can jump into kind of the the question topic at hand.
1: Sure. Th- thanks, Scott. Um, so, uh, my name is Abe Gong. I'm coming from a data science and data engineering background. Uh, Most of my experience over the last not quite 10 years in industry has been in growth stage startups doing interesting stuff with data. Uh, And I I kind of pride myself on having done that in very tech first companies like Jawbone, where I was the first data scientist and also companies where engineering and data have a seat at the table. But, you know, it's not all about shipping, shipping a product made of bits. So, uh, for example, I was the chief data officer at an insurance tech company called Aspire Health, where we were doing kind of deep integrations with medical systems and actually um, kind of deploying doctors and nurses to, uh, to work with really sick patients. Uh, so I, I think I kind of have an, an interesting and unusual blend of experience in the sense of having seen both of those worlds. And uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time just thinking about how are they similar? How are they different? Like, what are the common themes?
0: Yeah. What, what what are through lines, which is kind of what I'm trying to do with this podcast of like get, find those through lines and, you know, get a bunch of different perspectives and, you know, competing perspectives are totally valid and all that. So um, yeah, it takes two, two points to make a line, right? <laughs> um. Well, and, and so I think a good place to start off with this is like, what were you seeing? What, what was happening historically? What have you kind of gone through? And if you were to set up um kind of what was happening at these growth stage startups and with data breaking and things like that like how would you have set things up whether that's the technical or the socio-technical or the people process however you want to talk about it to prevent those kind of the, the what feel like preventable changes but the way we've worked make them not preventable changes so i
1: i think the language preventable changes i've never heard it said exactly that way i I think it's a really interesting one like the the experience that comes to mind right off the bat is one that i know a lot of other people had uh so when i was at jawbone we were building machine learning models and i just kind of give the high level some of what we were doing was trying to like Uh, predict people's activity or or, or more like group people's activity together. So you see somebody who takes a whole bunch of steps between one and two o'clock on a Saturday. And if you bring in the right features and data, you can identify like, oh, this person was playing soccer at such and such park during that period. And so being able to identify that moment um, was actually a really cool kind of product feature, uh, made the product much more engaging, just made it feel a lot smarter. So we were doing some things like that. We were also doing some work around um, predicting sales and trying to identify, like, when uh, when are batteries likely to fail, things like that. So anyway, for, for work like that, a lot of what we were doing was downstream of logging systems, and there were logging systems that were built and maintained by software engineers, and built and maintained primarily by software engineers for software engineers. Right? This is it's a classic data exhaust. Uh, thing where we, you know we're, we're using the byproduct of somebody else's system for something that's useful, and the problem that we'd have is those teams wanted to be agile, wanted to move fast, and they they, they didn't care about this byproduct. So they would change, for example, the enumerated values that corresponded to different things um, in their logging system, and for us that like. It, it might just be sort of a semantic change, but it could completely blow up the models that we are using. So if, you know, on day one, you have, uh, you know, some key feature that looking at is flagged as a two. And then, you know, a week later they say, you know what, instead of having two categories for this, now there are seven categories. And the things that used to be twos are now fla- uh, flagged as four or five. And some of the sevens, like your machine learning model is hosed at that point. And, it, uh, the, the kind of negotiations that we had then were, hey, can you please just tell us before you make one of these changes? So so coming back, I, I, I'm not going, going to this long vignette, but you talk about preventable changes. Like, do you want to prevent the change or do you just want to coordinate on the change? Like, you certainly don't want to make the change without the downstream consumers of the data knowing about it. And at the time, you know, six years ago, there was like no way for us to coordinate on that, other than us going to a lot of meetings with the software engineers, so that we could kind of sniff out when they were going to cha- make changes to their logs.
0: Well, and and I think I I, I think the word that I, I should have used was preventable um, breakages or, or things like that. But it is a, a breaking change, but you have to enable the ability to evolve your application schema. Without it, <laughs> breaking your data model that you're sharing, right? And that that's kind of the a big topic du jour because when people start to to say, okay, you have to focus on serving your data in this way, data as a product, and and that that it's like, oh, but we're we're the way we've thought about data is mapping one to one. Between the application mm-hmm. schema, and so is there a um, a kind of buffer system that that makes it so you can evolve both? Because you have to evolve your application schema often much more quickly, but you also have to evolve your your data model so that you're you're actually sharing the relevancy of the <laughs> the domain and what's mm-hmm. actually happening instead of oh we said we were going to serve this data in this way three years ago it no longer makes any sense but we're still going to keep doing it because that's what we committed to. It's like, okay, that's dumb. But like, um, yeah, like how how would you think about making it so that there's the changes, but not that you prevent the breakages, right? Th- those breakages are the things that, that are uh, the issue. It's not the changes at all. Yep. Well, and, and the
1: interesting thing is from the software engineer's perspective, it's not a breaking change because it's just a logging system, right? Like not, nothing broke. So the, the word that I, whenever I talk with somebody about this, I just sort of wait to see how long it is until this word shows up. And the word is unexpected, because the difference between a breaking change and a controlled change is, was the change expected or not? And you know, speaking as one of the authors of Great Expectations, I, I love it every time somebody uses that word. But I, like I think there's actually real significance there, and I think it's one of the things that the data mesh community is starting to get at in a really meaningful way, which is the notion that there are multiple consumers of data, and like the right way to set up your your handshake, we often talk about, or your data contract, if you like that term better, is you need to make sure that the kind of there's a change management process or a lifecycle process where you don't introduce unexpected changes for other consumers of the data, and. Um, what, what I would say is like, that was the missing social slash technical infrastructure in this role at Jobone. There was no way for them to make changes without getting stuck on us, um, without them thrashing us by making changes that were unexpected to us. And the kind of the very kludgy system that we put in, it, it wasn't technical at all. It wasn't some metadata thing. It was, we sat in a lot of their meetings. And using that, we were able to catch a lot of the things that would have been surprising and uh, breaking for us, but yeah, i've like ever since then had this idea of like, well, couldn't there be a better way like what it, what if there was somewhere where we could be notified that those changes were being planned um, or that they knew that we were consumers of that data uh, and so they could understand which changes they were making that might thrash us
0: and and i've I've been talking about this you know kind of wonderland software thing of this is what I want it to do. I don't know if it's possible or whatever, but of exactly uh, a lot of what you talked about there is people think software developers don't have the empathy for the the data consumers. And when they're in an exhaust mode, it's like they don't have empathy for for data consumers. And it's like, they can't. There, There isn't an ability for them to continue to evolve that schema. They can't go and say... Hey everybody! Here's the changes we're gonna make. Is this gonna break your stuff? Because nobody knows, right? Like you, you mm-hmm. have these lineage problems. You have all these these issues where somebody's is downstream of downstream of downstream of downstream. So they have no idea if that change is gonna break what they're doing or not. And so uh, that kind of controlled consumption understanding and that you know I would love for somebody when they check out. Uh, you know the software that's going to be updating the schema when they're like i'm going to be checking out the schema and i know it's not typically managed directly like i have a file that is the schema right <laughs> but mm-hmm. but that you're you're checking that out that there is an integration test or there is a, a some kind of test where they go this is what we're going to do and it's like this is going to break this in this way and then that brings somebody in to have that conversation and the downstream consumers you know you think about versioning but even the downstream consumers can get part of that conversation it goes this is a breaking change relative to what you've been sharing but the downstream consumers can talk about here's what we're consuming from it. So you're dropping this column. It breaks your contract, but we don't care. No one cares because nobody's do- using that column. So boom, don't go to versioning, just do it or, or go to version two. And we all auto increment, right? Like mm-hmm. even that, that auto increment concept uh, for consumers of, okay, I've got two different versions, the way you're consuming, it doesn't matter that this thing changed. So boom you auto increment to version 2 you don't have to do a migration path you don't have to care like yes yep. it's 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 magic wand waving but like that's where we need to get to so i i totally see that vision of the future it's it's not i
1: i mean if you go back a generation i think the kind of the big quest for distributed data systems was like self-healing data systems in this case I'm not sure exactly what, it, it's something like self propagating changes or something like that, but it's, it's a world in which the, the data system kind of like holds itself together well enough to be able to propagate these changes all the way through with, with you know, zero or minimal effort on the part of the participants. I mean, I can kind of see the spectrum where the jawbone world that I was describing, where the solution is more meetings, and then the fully automated solution that you're describing, like fully self-propagating, like those are the two extreme ends of the spectrum. And you can see a lot of teams kind of pr- making their way from the one to the other. Um,
0: and, and and that you have that f- that fully automated that when there is a, a thing that, that people have to care about, it generates a meeting, right? Like th- this was something uh, Chris Ricomini talked about in his episode of like there was, they had. CI software that literally when you would try and put in your your commit it would just be like this is going to cause a breaking change and then you know 80 90% of the time they were like oh we don't need to do that I just I was just dropping this column cuz I was dropping the column like eh, it's not really provide you know creating a performance impact it's not an-. 10 to 20% of the time it was OK, we still need to do this because this is causing performance issues or we really need to make this change or this is crucial for us to do this. And so then that generated the meetings. And, and uh, Tim Tischler in his his episode talked about the same thing of we need to think we need to stop having this be a ticket based culture because Ticket is the worst of both worlds between a high-touch meeting and fully automated, right? It feels like mm-hmm. it's this automated mm-hmm. thing of, I put it on the backlog and therefore it is it is there, but it, it, you just don't really share your context in that right way,
1: so. Actually, can I go to that for a minute? Because, yeah. and this starts, this starts to get to great expectations, kind of the specific tooling that we're building, but part of the way that we're building it is, I, I really like the way you're segmenting it between like create the meeting And then I actually want to argue that kind of step, I don't know. We're like 10 steps down the road, but step 11 I think is create the meeting and then you kill the meeting or make the meeting unnecessary. And the way I would describe that is I don't think that we're going to move to a world where kind of the machines understand everything and there's no need for domain expertise. I like, I mean, if if that happens, then human beings are obsolete and like (laughs) like we've (laughs) either progressed or have bigger problems, depending on how you think about that. Um, But what I do think you can do, so like having sat in a lot of those meetings where it's like a data adjudication meeting where you're trying to figure out, okay, there's this refactor that we're doing or that this change to the pipeline. How are we going to satisfy all of that? Um, What I've noticed is in those meetings, people almost always have laptops open. And it's like the SQL people and the Python people, because in order to make a uh, kind of an intelligent step forward, you have to query the data, understand what the current state is. Like, And when I say current state, I don't mean literally the bits. I mean, like, how does it work today? Mm-hmm. And then after doing that, um, you say, okay, we understand how it used to work. We're going to make this planned migration to how it will work in the future. Um, but the crucial thing is this meeting isn't just a meeting among people. It's a meeting among people who are querying the data, because the data itself gets a veto in this process. Um, it's one of the things that I think is actually pretty different about uh, data design process and software design process. Like in software, you typically bring the user into the room, you show them the software and they, they click on the thing and they move the thing and they react to it. And you can get all of the reaction that you want just out of the user's head, right? Like the way they react tells you everything that you need. But in the data world, you have uh, you know, domain experts or data stewards or, or you know, data scientists who kind of functionally do or analysts who just functionally similar things. And they're, they're actually, to some extent, they're holders of specific knowledge, but you can almost think of them as like, like the agent acting on behalf of the data, right? Because they're going to say like, okay, I think that makes sense, but let me go back and check with the data to make sure that really makes sense. And you get this sense of like, they're almost going back to talk to their boss, Um and I say this like having been in this role many times, but like the data gets a veto
0: in that process. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of it as an actual constituent in the room, right? Like it's, it's mm-hmm. part of the, because it, it, the way, is this change going to make it so that it, it no longer has the semantic meaning that it needs to have or that people think it has? And then you have to say, okay, if there, if that change is, if it is changing that semantic meaning not just the ones and zeros. Like, uh, you know, if you refactor a column for weight and you go from grams to kilograms, the semantic meaning has definitely changed, but your data contract doesn't fail. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think that makes a lot of sense of of making sure that it still does what you think it does. <laughs> that it's with this change, it's going to make sense.
1: So on that, actually when you say your data contract doesn't fail, I think that's a place where the Great Expectations community has a pretty specific take on data contracts. Um, Because as I've heard you use the term in other places, often it's pretty close to schema contract, if that makes sense. It's kind of like, how's the data formatted and like what. um, But like our take is it actually, like you don't want to boil it down to just like a small number of set things. Like the data contract should be whatever people expect of the data. So if the expectation is, hey, the range is between one and 10, because that's what we expect for grams, not kilograms. Okay. Like that's, that expectation is part of the contract. Um, If the expectation is this table should never be a lot bigger than that table, right? Like they should be within X percent of the same number of rows. That's also a perfectly valid uh, expectation to have entered in that contract. And what happens when you formulate it that way is um, people build these tests uh, like they build tests that verify that the data does what they expect. Um, that ends up being a way of kind of shifting left any surprises that you would have got later on because like, okay, the data has made it this far down in the data system, but at least it hasn't gotten any further. So I can have this checkpoint here that tells me if there's anything unexpected. And what ends up happening over time is that that expectation suite ends up essentially being the data contract. Because all of the things that people care about, both upstream and downstream, get attached to it as verifiable expectations.
0: Well, and and on that, like if you change the grams to kilograms or other way around or whatever, that you have broken your contract, even if the automated tooling doesn't say like that schema side, right? So there is that expectations, but you have to also start to think about semantic drift. Data drift, <laughs> like that, that concept, I don't think we've started to we 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 talk about it with with models, with ML models and things like that, but we have to start to think about it with all sets of data. That it's it's that that that, you know, uh, Abi or no, um Chad Sanderson when he was talking about or no, I think it was Abi. Abi was talking about um at Flexport the concept of an order was, Mm -hmm. has completely Mm -hmm. evolved, right? It's 10 X bigger than it was. And so, you know, you have these, these evolutions. And so is contract really the right term versus not? I don't really care, but if you try and say that a contract is locking somebody into doing X and Y and Z versus this kind of set of agreements in this set of, of like, I mean, I think expectations is, is the right, the better way to think about it of, You are setting these expectations and when those expectations are changing, the expectation is for you to change the expectation. So it's like the second derivative of your expectation. Yes. Yes. Well, well, and what I would say is that is what we've used contract. Like that's
1: what it takes for a social contract to work, right? Like Mm -hmm. if I'm going to thrash you. Uh, I need to know about that ahead of time and let you know so that you perceive it as a like a managed change, like a, a predictable thing that you can own rather than like, whoa, everything's blowing up and I don't know why it's blowing up. And why did Scott do this to me again?
0: Yeah. And how so I mean, as a tooling provider, but you're also talking about the importance of of the social aspect and the, the kind of socio technical side, um, like where you, you talked about that you're kind of in the stream of the transformations versus is there a way for us to think about how we we push that even into the initial um, expectation of the initial ingestion like i, I kind of hate data lineage because data lineage starts at the beginning of the pipeline it doesn't start in the source system and so mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. the way we, we track lineage and it's kind of feels like this is that same thing of like how do we flip that and push that left enough where the software engineers can actually care and they they can test or they can know oh it's not just this thing broke it's this thing will break things for people so let's bring them into the room let's you know make sure that we're we're aware of what we're breaking or or you know try to prevent these these breaking changes
1: yeah so when you look at how people deploy great expectations there're really two modes one is kind of in the mix of the transformations so that would be for example logic in a uh, spark pipeline that says like hey if the data doesn't look like this at a certain point if it doesn't pass these checks then halt the pipeline because something's blown up and we don't want to propagate that data downstream so spark Airflow, you know pandas or machine learning tools um, the other one that you see and, and we think of that as data in motion um, the other one that you see a lot is data at rest which is, hey, I have a table that I just want to verify every night uh, in my data warehouse looks the way it should look. Um, So this isn't perfectly one-to-one, but what you tend to see is that teams that are deploying great expectations as a testing framework to verify their own business logic do it in motion. And teams that uh, that are looking to verify the kind of correct handing off of data across team boundaries do it at rest, or they do it at rest using a tool like Airflow or something like that. But but um, there's this notion of is the data, the immediate data that's being validated, is that something that's kind of within the concerns of one team, or is it is it being validated now because it's crossing team boundaries? And th- the interesting thing that we see is like great expectations get used for both. Like I'm frankly, I think it's like uniquely powerful tool for doing both of those. Um, The tests get used in both places. The docs, so this notion of being able to compile your docs from your tests, those get used much more aggressively across team boundaries. And I think the reason for that is because you often have people who are either kind of like making and expecting changes at different frequencies in time, right? Like the software team that's like, or or actually the the orders um, process that you described before. So it's like a business process that's changing what it means to be in order, and that uh, that process updates much faster than the downstream process of updating the analytics for orders, for example. So there's often like kind of a mismatch in cadence across teams. Um, and then the other mismatch that you often see is a mismatch in languages. So sometimes one team will be kind of primarily SQL users, and the other will be primarily Python users or Spark users. Or sometimes it'll be uh, kind of a coding team that uses, um, say, say. Pandas and Python and, and some SQL. And then downstream of that, there'll be business users who are mostly in Excel, right? Like they might write a SQL query or two, but they're not really coders.
0: And, and the the thing that I'm hearing from this is, is, again, that purely technical aspect of it versus like, how are you finding that your people, that users of this are injecting in the social aspect of it? Mm-hmm. And, and that they, you know, you talked about it being kind of a testing framework. Is this pre-commit or post-commit cuz most most people don't have their data side set up where they can actually do proper testing, right? Like that's that's mm-hmm. so much of a software specific thing that obviously data needs to do, but we don't have that those good integration tests in most cases.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, if you go back to this notion of shift left, shift right, kind of the rightmost way of doing data validation is monitoring once it's in the warehouse or in the data lake, like the actual data as it's flowing. If you want to shift that left, you start, one, picking up things closer to ingestion and kind of like further upstream in the pipeline. Um, if you think about that from like a lifecycle process, the way you shift left is you're actually doing integration tests on the code. So when the code changes, you're not just sort of deploying it blind and hoping that the data works out later, you actually have a good test suite there. So uh, again, we we think of both of those as part of our mandate, right? Like one of the reasons that having an open source tool is so powerful is people can integrate it wherever they want. Now, I think the thing that's most painful for most users is the monitoring is the point where, and, and frankly it's because that's the point where you'll be embarrassed if it's wrong. Because mm. it'll break your product or, you know, break a dashboard and somebody will come and shout at you. Um, so I think that's where kind of the pain starts. But when you look at what it takes to solve that holistically, like, yeah, you, we're absolutely going to have to get all the way back into full testing of uh, data systems, you know, before depl- before changes are deployed.
0: And and but, uh, how have you seen, have you seen anybody that's doing this from a social aspect that's doing it successfully right like what 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 i'm trying to get to with a lot of these these things on the podcast is yes talk to people's pains so they feel like they're not alone right that they're not the only one running into this because when i when i started looking for uh, content around data contracts i found a meetup that you had done and like one post and then there was andrew jones's post from go Cardless, which kind of sent me down this road and then like three podcasts that I had put out and then, you know, Abhi also went on the uh, data engineering podcast uh, to talk about this topic, but there's just not a lot out there specifically about this topic. So mm-hmm. like, how have you found outside of just the technical aspects that, that people have worked towards implementing the, these ideals and these approaches in a way that is sustainable and scalable and that's not just you know trying to solve things with just technology is kind of what we've been doing in data for 50 years and it hasn't worked so we've got we've got to really focus on the people process and use the technology uh, to augment and to help us solve the problem but it is not the thing that solves the problem Mm -hmm so
1: i'm going to amalgamate a little bit rather than kind of telling other people's embarrassing stories but let me just describe kind of like the modal evolution that we we see for great expectations Mm -hmm. um so there's more than one flavor but but i think the most common one is a team will bring in great expectations and they'll apply it first to their incoming data um, to make sure that they don't get thrashed by an upstream data provider and the upstream data provider could be another team within their company it could be um uh it, it could be a data system that's managed by software engineers. it could be a data vendor like all, all of those apply It's just somebody who's upstream of you in kind of the great flow of data like that that giant imaginary dag that exists out there uh, where they're doing stuff that you don't control and so Uh, The the modal use case is people will bring in uh, great expectations to test and validate that data at the moment that it crosses into the border of their system to make sure that um, they're not going to get thrashed by the thing that thrashed them last week, right? Um, So they build a bunch of expectations for that, and then they produce data docs for it. And initially, the data docs are used by that team. So it's that team just kind of agreeing on, okay, here's, here's what we expect of the data. We all see that together. This is a useful kind of training socialization tool for us as a team. Um, then eventually the data breaks again. And when that happens, one of two things can go down. Uh, if it's something where they'd already built expectations, what what the uh, team that has deployed the expectations will do is they'll take that back as sort of a data contract that the other team didn't know they were signed up for yet. And they'll say, hey, here are our data tests. You know, Up until now, we never saw null values in this column. And all of a sudden we're getting nulls here. Or uh, these two columns are always correlated at a certain level and suddenly that correlation is much, much weaker and so our models are breaking or something like that. And I I think the interesting thing is you still have that meeting just like we talked about, but now there's this very concrete action that can come out of it where you can say, please make that test not break anymore or educate us so that we can update our pipeline so that it takes into account whatever the change was. Um, And the thing that I like about it is it's... um, it's this very human process, right? You still have to talk to each other. You still have to share context, but now you're doing it with, without sharing kind of like context is such a loose word, right? Like it could mean anything. And in this case, you can come with a very discreet, like, Hey, here's the thing that's breaking. I need to understand why this specific thing broke, which leads to a much more focused, much more productive conversation. Um, and as long as we're doing the shift left thing at the end of that conversation, you agree on a new shared expectation, and now you do have a data contract. So there's this like really interesting bootstrapping motion where a team starts with testing to just kind of defend themselves. And then over time, because they have other stakeholders who, like, I mean, you said before software engineers don't always empathize with data users. They, they just like, usually they don't understand the requirements, right? They don't understand how it's being used. And this notion of tests and docs together becomes a really powerful way of illustrating and kind of ratcheting forward progress together there.
0: Yeah. And, 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 what I, I say a lot on this is that the software developers can't empathize. It's it's not that they don't, it's that they literally to do their job, they have to kind of disassociate because they don't have the tooling to do this. But it's kind of interesting that this is this is something that I keep hearing as well, is that it's kind of consumer-driven testing that then is provided to the um to the, uh, producers. And so is that how, you know, it would be, you know, uh, what, what is it? If, if, ifs and nuts were, or ifs and buts were candy and nuts, we'd all whatever, you know, like in an ideal world that the, um, data producers would say, here is our our expectation suite or you know for great expectation specifically but just in general here's our our data contract or social contract around this here's the schema and the semantics and and this and we're putting that into our documentation and we're, we're doing that but it sounds like what what you're saying is is that in practice especially when you think about something like a uh, in data mesh where you're you know as Jessatron had said you're you know, doing conscious design for unexpected use, you don't know exactly how things are going to be used. And maybe we need the tooling to say how things are being used. So if somebody is trying to evolve their their application schema, and it's going to cause some some changes to have to occur in the data product that they, they know, um, are people actually even using that? Does it matter? Mm-hmm. But it sounds like it's it's that consumer driven um is is helpful and and there's another aspect as well, which is I can't remember exactly who said it. I think it might have been Tim Tischler who's saying if you have meetings about requirements, you're doing it wrong instead of if you go in with negotiations right and that's kind of what mm-hmm. you said you didn't you, you know you didn't use the exact wording, but it, it's going in and it's having a conversation instead of having an ask right of hey, we're going to go in and you have to make these changes and let's negotiate and figure out do you actually have to make these changes in this way or can you still serve us this or can oh, you I backfill, yes. right? You're you're you're, um, you're going to be changing the way that you're computing this thing. Can you help us backfill this data um, and take on that cost of backfilling that data or we'll, we'll pay for some of that backfill but we really need it and like... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that conversation starter instead of just tickets right tickets yes. just don't don't have so it's it's really interesting that you're seeing kind of that same thing but I, I, it's more of a real world example of how this actually works instead of people going i shall uh, put out my data my data product with these things and every everything is good and golden you, you don't know how it's going to get used so
1: I, I think that's exactly right i'm more optimistic about a world where data gets used in surprising and unexpected ways, right? Like where there are things that we didn't know that we were going to find that light up new ideas and that end up turning into really cool insights and products and ways to build stuff. And I guess I'm I'm so like deeply fundamentally optimistic about that, that if anybody says like, oh, I can specify all the requirements for this data for all future. I I almost look at that as like a pessimistic statement of like, okay, I get it. This is, this is a process where there is no room for creativity and um, I would take to argue that like if you go back a generation or two to some of the older data governance project, products, that's essentially what they did. They like locked down a definition of data quality and made it very hard to change and therefore were able to guarantee that that quality would exist going
0: forward. It, it and, just wasn't valuable, right? <laughs> like, or, the, or, the, or the value deteriorated.
1: I think often it was valuable for the very specific use case for which it was designed, but there was no, no notion of data exhaust. Um, if, if, if I can actually go there for a minute, like one of the things that so I, I don't know if you know this, I, I trained in social science and, um, did a PhD in public policy. So whenever somebody says contracts, I think of coast theorem. Do, do you know coast theorem? Mm, I do not. Uh, so it's this interesting economic theorem that basically says, Hey, we all believe that markets are a really efficient way of allocating resources. Right. Um, right. Like they're, they're good at that. Uh, so if that's the case, why do we have companies at all? right? Like, why do you have like in the middle of these markets, it's sort of studded with these big monolithic entities that act more like dictatorships or more like, you know, mm-hmm. very strong command and control power structures. So basically the question is, okay, if markets are powerful, why don't they just kind of, di- why doesn't everything dissolve into a pure market? And, uh, the coast theorem answer to that is it's about contractability. Certain types of work are too unpredictable to build a contract around and, um, so for example if you have you know say a designer on your team you can't specify like hey you will generate x figma designs to y specifications and that will be your employment for the next two years and you know therefore i can have a contract with you that's not an employment contract but it's just about the delivery of figma designs like it's it's too messy right like that kind of work isn't contractable it can't be segmented out that way um but Conversely, when things are contractable, you can end up with these like very crisp, clear divisions of labor, and it transforms the way whole markets work, not just at the market level, but at the organizational level.
0: And I feel like providing certain guarantees is crucial for data reusability in in many different ways of people being able to just trust that data. But I, like, I mean, when you talk about um, uncontractable, that was kind of when I was joining data stacks, um, our our chief strategy officer was, you know, people were were saying, okay, so Scott can do these crazy weird things. Um, let's write them down and say that you're going to generate X and Y and Z a week. And it's like, no, it's based on what's happening and what's opportunity. And so our chief strategy officer just called me the serendipity engine. And Mm -hmm. so like that, that, that ability, like data mesh, I feel like is that kind of, insight serendipity engine like you've got you've got a very very structured uh framework for for making it so that you can understand and trust data and so that you know that it's going to be there and you know that it's not going to change out from underneath you if you kind of sign on as a consumer of that data but that you also have that serendipity that ability to data spelunk and find that new insight and so i think i think that's that's an interesting thing that i hadn't thought of of you don't want to lock yourself into a contract that doesn't allow for that serendipity because if if you do you're you're preventing those those insane aha moments those those kind of crazy um things where where somebody was like i'm going to try and cross correlate these and and then i'm going to find like this really really uh interesting insight that's really going to drive us forward
1: mm-hmm yeah, I, I like. I see a similar thing. I think like if you go back a few years, the choice was: do I have no contract uh, around data, and so it's really just like, hey, I've got to go to your meetings; you've got to come to mine. We've got to like really, really just be, you know, very much kind of uh, in the trenches together, or do I go for one of the like very big, heavy, enterprisey contracts where it's going to be this extremely heavyweight, difficult to change contract um, that's going to kind of. Freeze out any serendipity from the system and it's sort of a crappy um, decision to have to make. And one of the things that I'm really excited with um, Great Expectations and and other tools in the modern data stack is I think we're moving towards a place where you can have much lighter weight, much more kind of fluid and human notions of contracts. Um, So, and I think where that will take us is we're going to be in a place where um, change can happen without feeling thrashy. Um, and so people can stay on the same page and coordinate about the changes that they need to make. If that needs to be kind of heavy governance process that brings in legal and all of that, like, yes, that can happen. But, um, you can also have kind of conversations around data quality and data contracts that are just much more team to team and allow people to, uh, to evolve what they're doing and to, to learn along the way. So I'm excited about it partly because I think, Coase theorem says that like, when we do that, the structure of teams will change. Like what is contractable will change the structure of teams and also change the structure of what can be kind of productively produced together. And I see us on the cusp of that. Uh, and I, I, I'll, I'll be honest, I don't feel like I ha- or anybody else has a super clear picture of what that world is going to look like, but, but it's clear that things are evolving in that direction. Um, and, and I think it's a world that has more flexibility and more creativity, um, but also more predictability together. And like that's a rare combination. It's exciting to me.
0: Yeah, and, and that you don't think of the data contract as a terms of service where I can update it however I want, whenever I want, and that you know versus these these things. I I have empathy for my consumers, so I am going to take the time to understand them and evolve this in a way that's that's beneficial and we're, or or that if If it is going to cause uh, pain that we're we're working with them to prevent that pain as much as possible and to make it manageable and to, you know, like do versioning and things like that. It's not that you wake up on, on Monday and somebody deployed something, you know, two hours ago and it's broken everything that you mm-hmm. do now the next three weeks,
1: back. I know what I, you know, I don't know exactly what that work's going to be like, but I know the kind of work it's going to be, and I don't like it,
0: right. Yeah. so it's 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 an interesting. Uh, concept and I think that that fluidity is it is difficult to achieve because I mean even in the past we haven't had data consumers and data producers in the same room they've been communicating they've been playing telephone through data engineering right of these are our requirements you know hey data engineering go work with the uh, producing team and get the data that we want here are our requirements. And it hasn't been that that kind of negotiation piece. So it's interesting, you know, Conway's Law of, of you want to get to a place where you actually have mm-hmm. useful uh, conversations. So
1: actually, Scott, if, if if I can jump in with one more thought there, and that this yeah. is sort of kind of like the big vision for where we want great expectations as an open source project to go. Our Our kind of core thesis as it relates to data contracts is that the missing piece from a technical perspective, or I won't say the missing piece, an important missing piece is to have a shared language where people um, from different parts of the organization who speak different technical languages can express what they expect and put it in a contract that'll be enforced automatically, like enforced through data quality checking. And that having that shared language um, is kind of a fundamental technology for unlocking a lot of the other social changes that you need to be able to make in order for data contracts to work. So our our goal for great expectations is to be this shared open standard for data quality that really becomes that kind of language where you can express any expectation that you have of data that's verifiable um, and then use that as the basis for these kinds of checkpoints or contracts, whatever you want to call them, like shared expectations.
0: That's interesting to say that a shared language is is via a technology versus language. right? Like it's, it's just an interesting thought there. Um, Well, But I I
1: think the reason why for at least I believe that it has to be that way for data is because of this notion of the data gets a veto, right? Like the data is sort of in the room for the conversation. Um, you, You need to actually be able to verify it, verify your expectations with the data because if they turn out to not be true, Okay, that's going to blow things up. You're going to have to start all over again. So, so I actually think that the notion that it is deeply connected to technology is an essential part of what makes it work.
0: Well, and that's this is where the whole concept around data contracts and just being schema contracts breaks, right? Like, if, if it's just schema contracts, you don't have any of the semantic. And so, if the semantic changes, it, it you know, it, it may be that your um, like you, your previous example of instead of it going from one, one and two to one through seven, if it went, um, one through seven to one or two, it it wouldn't break. Right. But Mm -hmm. everything about it is broken, right? Like the actual data itself is broken, but the schema isn't right. It's still producing what, what, what you would expect. And so that, that, how do you detect those, that semantic change and how do you you know, I think that's that's much more complicated than we need to go right now because we we still, you know, it that's um, trying to build uh, the airplane or whatever when we we're barely kind of banging out wheels, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we need to 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 think about that, but we also need to start to think about how do we how do we make it so that the the people. If we're shifting left, these responsibilities around data quality and and all of that, how do we make it so that it doesn't have a massive amount of cognitive load, where they don't have to go? Okay, this change might break all of my data things in this way and that way and this way, and that it it causes those those issues instead of how do we? Um, and and I I don't have the answers. It sounds like you're 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 further along in thinking about this, but.
1: I think we have some pieces of the puzzle and like the, the reason why I love coming on and talking with you about it is I'm hoping that other people who are thinking about this, you know, something about how we're talking about it will stick in their brains and they'll come back and, you know, add it to this big snowball of ideas and technology that's moving forward.
0: Yeah. I'm I'm uh, I was trying to work with uh, O'Reilly about getting a market report out about data contracts because um, literally I think this is something that, that it's, This hidden challenge at the very beginning of the year, I had four companies tell me, without me talking about data contracts at all, that their biggest challenge for for 2022 was how to really get their data contracts in place. This is this is that hidden challenge that absolutely everybody has, but nobody's really talking about it because it's got forty different aspects and 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 like trying to tackle it all at once. It's kind of like with data mesh, the people who are trying to tackle it all at once instead of move along, build some muscle, get some learnings, make some mistakes. That's fine. Mm -hmm. It's just Mm -hmm. not, it's not the, the best approach. So, um, well, I want to be cognizant of time here. So, uh, you know, we've covered a lot of different things. Um, if there, is there anything that you think kind of puts a button on or that, that you think that's the most important challenge that you you still don't know the answer to, or that you want people coming to you about, um, on this topic in general, you know, lots of different places you could take that. But is there is there anything that, that you think is is kind of the good summation point on a lot of what we've discussed?
1: Yeah, so I'm hearing two things like, what do, what do we know? What do we not know? So, so if yeah. I'm trying to encapsulate it, stuff, stuff that I'm pretty confident in, like, I, I think these are ideas that are going to stick. Uh, I'm pretty confident that data contracts being made up of expectations and specifically shared expectations across teams, I think that's a kind of powerful fundamental concept. And yeah, I think that's one that i am getting very strongly both from my experience and from the community. Um, I think the notion that there has to be kind of a, uh, that shifting left is a good thing there, that in general, like the later you get surprised or the later you're hit by something unexpected, the worse it is. Um, I think that's a really productive avenue for questions. Um, like, how do you shift left in terms of the data pipeline and data flows? How do you shift left in terms of t- uh, calendar time? How do you shift left in terms of like the planning and uh, planning process to give more predictability to people? I, I don't. I wouldn't claim that I have total answers to all of those, but I think that's a very productive question to ask. Um, and at, at least my worldview on this is: it's all about having a process that kind of builds up shared expectations, and is able to make sure that they don't slip over time. That, like, once you've aligned on shared expectations, you don't have to come back and renegotiate that unless something really has genuinely changed. Um, that,
0: that makes a lot of sense, and and kind of that you can. Figure out okay, this thing isn't in our shared expectation, so I can make this change as well. That you don't have that analysis paralysis. Um, mm-hmm. of what what can I actually evolve in my in my application? So, well, yeah. hey, this has been uh, phenomenal. I think it's going to be uh, a really useful um, stepping stone as well in this kind of evolving conversation that that I'm having on the podcast and in general as a community we're having around a data contracts. So, thank thank you for that. Um, where can people find you? Where's the best way to, to get in touch? Is it going to be LinkedIn or Twitter or wherever? And and what do you want them reaching out to you about, you know, whether it's on the data contract side or other aspects?
1: LinkedIn is great. I'm a little slow. I'm, you know, on the platform maybe once or twice a week. Um, as you know, I've been slow to respond to some of your inquiries there. Um, Twitter also works. I'm just Abe Gong, A-B-E-G-O-N-G. And... Um, the other place people can reach me is through the Great Expectations Slack channel, um, which you, you can just you can get to it through uh, GreatExpectations.io and then just jump in on Slack there.
0: Yeah, Any I'll, of those work. I'll yeah. drop links in the show notes just to make it easy for folks. Okay, awesome. And then what? What did you want them specifically reaching out to you about? Like, what's the the thing that where you really want to continue the conversation on? If they've got answers or if they've got questions or what? <laughs> I would love to just riff on the notion of data contracts with people.
1: Um, if they, you know, if they're great expectations users or, or, you know, interested in it and they want to explore specific use cases there. Okay. That's great. Like that's the thing that I can kind of fold into my day job easily, but um, I, I'm just interested in the topic period. And so I would say if there's something here that kind of sparked a thought and you want to compare notes, I'm up for that. I, I like, I definitely just want to be in the flow of the conversation.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Abe. As I said, this is going to help a lot of people and thanks everybody for listening. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Abe Gong, the co-creator of the open source data quality monitoring observability tool, Great Expectations, and the co-founder slash CEO of Superconductive. If you'd like to get in contact with Abe, you can find his contact information in the show notes. Thanks. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left DataStax, who were wonderful in getting the data mesh community stuff started. So give them a shout for streaming and real time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one off or a month to month basis. You know, read kind of, throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables. You know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well. And have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music.